All right, well, we're going to continue on in this new sort of period of time that we're looking at. Um, sometimes it's called the patristic period or the time of the apostolic fathers. There's different ways to kind of view this period of church history, but, but essentially it's the period of time uh, after the death of the apostles or after the apostolic period. And it's a time that leads up to, it's about a 500-year period of time, if you want to think of it in technical terms. Um, some historians might characterize that differently. They might uh, increase that time span. But, but really, a 500-year period of time is, is probably a, a, the best way to look at it. I'll elaborate on that a little bit more in just a moment. But one of the things we did last time we were together is we sort of produced a little bit of context for this period of time, and it's really not new in, in, in some sense, but it certainly uh, takes on a different shade, if you will, uh, and during this period of time. And that's this, this whole burden of persecution, this, this whole reality in, in the history of the church of believers being persecuted, suffering um, at the hands of various authorities just for the fact of being believers. And we talked about this, how... This resistance to the gospel um, and this persecution that, that took place, obviously we saw this all throughout our study of the first 30 years of church history and, and our look at Acts, where you see persecution coming primarily at the hands of the Jews, the Jewish authorities who were rejecting the gospel, who saw the gospel as a threat to their power base, their religious power base, uh, they saw it as um, blasphemous. They, they saw this uh, elevating this, this teacher, this, this rabbi to the level of godhood was a blasphemous thing. They did not obviously embrace the deity of Christ. And so there was resistance that the Apostle Paul and, and Peter and the apostles, the other apostles and, and the traveling companions that went on the missionary journeys, they all encountered these these various um, instances of persecution, some of them violent, some of them more slanderous in nature and verbal and, and just a, a verbal abuse and rejection socially. Um, and certainly it, 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 it threatened their lives even to the point of near-death experiences that the Apostle Paul certainly had. But you see this transitioning. And of course, in the, the Roman Empire, their, their participation in this was really primarily characterized as them being in some ways either co-opted by the Jewish leaders and them sort of acquiescing to the Jewish leaders um, to keep the peace, to not allow sort of a Jewish uprising to occur. So it was really mostly a civil matter for them. Or they would be proactive in some form of persecution of Christians because it was disruptive to the Roman way of life, to the Roman cultural value, to the Roman traditions of worship in the pantheon of gods and so forth. You see examples of this as well in Acts where, we'll allude to this in just a moment too, where uh, there's an uprising that takes place in Ephesus um, because there's such an impact of the gospel in Ephesus and while Paul is ministering there, so many people coming to faith in Christ that it is adversely affecting the economy, primarily the economy of, of those merchants who would, who would create these idols, these token idols, uh, to the goddess, of Ar- the goddess Artemis, who was the patron god of, of Ephesus. Um, 
And so it was, it was such a significant impact of the gospel that it diminished that business. And so Demetrius, along with his cohort of, of, of merchants and probably guild members of this, of this um, artisan craft, uh, craftsmanship, of building these idols, they, they forged a, a sort of an alliance and created a stir. And so that led to a form of persecution. Um, but, but you see this kind of taking on a different light as time goes on and as we move further into this period, both toward the end of the apostolic period and certainly into this patristic period or the period of the apostolic fathers, as they're called, I refer to from a historical standpoint, where you have persecution at the hands of Rome. It's more official in nature. And of course, we talked about this last time, how Nero basically instituted this um, initially scapegoating the Christians for um, the burning of, of Rome or a vast portion of the city of Rome. Uh, he, he, became, he became an object of suspicion amongst the Roman citizens, the citizens of Rome, as having some hand in starting these fires because of his ambition to rebuild the city. And uh, so as suspicion grew, he needed to find someone to put the blame on. And so he found a a worthy um, object in in the Christians. And of course, the persecution ensued and it became very, very severe. Um, And even so so much as that Tacitus, a a contemporary of Nero and a historian of that period of time, he described Nero's persecution as a refined cruelty. Those were his terms. It was a a type of persecution that was, it was a refined cruelty. It was was a a unique... uh, form of wickedness and it was such a of such a kind that he even it, it even turned back on him to where the people began to see that that this was not something that was a part of of justice for the Roman empire um, that somehow there had been this conspiracy to burn the city by these Christians and that Nero was just meeting out appropriate justice it really became apparent that he was there was a madness uh, to what was being uh, undertaken here. And people even became sympathetic uh, toward these persecuted Christians over time. But it was certainly uh, a form of persecution at the hands of the state, um, primarily in Rome. You have a period of time uh, s- uh, subsequent to that with the reign of Vespasian and Titus, where really the Christians are ignored for this period of time. Um, this is the period of time where uh, there is the sacking of Rome um, and, and, the, and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The final, huh? Oh, yes, sacking of Rome. Sacking of Jerusalem by Rome, that's right. Uh, and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So there's really not a lot of record of state-based persecution of Christians, but there is certainly the effect of... of um, of this sort of historical event taking place where there's this uprising amongst the Jewish people over a period of time and then the final assault on Jerusalem by uh, the Roman army and really the sacking of, of Jerusalem and the defeat of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But not a lot of, uh, of record of, of state-based persecution of Christians in particular until you come to Domitian. We talked about him a little bit last time we were together. Um, Domitian was more characterized by a, a, a lover of the traditions of Rome. And so insofar as the Christian sect served as some type of threat to those traditions as this new thing, this new 
religion, this new sect that could disrupt the ancient traditions um, that it deserved to be dealt with in some severe kind of way. Um, and this, this primarily seemed to center in uh, Rome as well as the, the region of Asia Minor um, under Domitian's um, reign and the persecution that affected the Christians at that point in time. Um, you have a, a, a reference from Clement of Rome. We're going to talk about him in more detail in just a moment. But in his letter to uh, the Corinthians that he wrote um, during this time period, he speaks of, quote, the continuous and unexpected evils which have come upon us. And, of course, he's writing from Rome, and so it's likely a reference to the, the, the persecution that was affecting the citizens of Rome. But you also have, uh, obviously, what we've been studying in our main service with Joel and studying Revelation. You have the letter to the seven churches of Asia, Asia Minor, and uh, the, the umbrella, one of the umbrella themes or the context of that letter is, is to encourage them and to give them hope in the midst of suffering and trial, hope both presently but also hope for a future uh, with Christ. And so that's the kind of the nature of persecution during that period of time. Obviously, um, Nero, as we talked about last week, or excuse me, Domitian, in a similar fashion as Nero, uh, he became increasingly seen as a tyrant. Um, he, he was ultimately assassinated in his own palace. Uh, he wanted to elevate himself to a deity, which was not uncommon uh, for the emperors or really for anyone in power. They, that, that lust for power becomes almost a, a form of, of self-idolatry and, and elevating oneself to the form of deity. But, but that, the, the, the people turned on him, and, and um, he was assassinated in his own palace. You have this period of time of, of about a year where you have Nerva, who's the emperor, and um, he was the first Roman emperor, just as a note, that was declared emperor by the Senate, um, as opposed to some type of uh, familial succession. Not much to report here, a very brief uh, reign, as his reign was hampered by financial stresses and difficulties, as well as he had trouble securing the fealty and loyalty of the Roman army. Um, so just a, he died of natural causes. There was, there was nothing really to report here from the standpoint of persecution, but he uh, uh, was basically forced by the Roman army to adopt a successor from the ranks of the Roman army. So he adopted a popular, young and popular uh, general named Trajan, who ultimately became his successor. And so under the reign of Trajan, you see persecution sort of taking hold again in a more formal sense, in a more pervasive sense, especially from the standpoint of history. And we have this really interesting, and I find fascinating record from a civil servant of the time. He was the governor of Bithynia named Pliny, or Pliny. Um, and, and so this is, a, this, is, and this is a bit of a remote region at the time. It was a, kind of a remote rural region. But he is inter, he's encountering these Christians um, in his region. So there's a flourishing Christian community um, in his province where he is uh, serving the, the empire as governor. And he's, he's trying to, to really figure out how to appropriately deal with this sect of Christians from a, a governance standpoint, from a legal standpoint. So he, he writes a letter to the emperor Trajan to seek his counsel and his guidance so that he would understand how to deal with them. He had, he had dealt with them in one way, in one fashion for a period of time, but, but seemed to begin to question uh, the approach, particularly from a legal standpoint, what would be the appropriate legal uh, implications and responsibilities that he should 
uh, carry out as the governor of this province. And so this letter provides for us this incredible historical reference point. And it's really fascinating to see how the, the practice and character of the Christians are described in this letter and how they're uh, called upon to be dealt with, how he has dealt with them, but and how he sort of views them, but also how they're just generally characterized. It's, this is something that is uh, kind of encouraging uh, in, in one sense of the term. It encourages us to see how how just their faithfulness was on display. And so this governor is recognizing this in this, this, this letter he's writing. Um, so the authenticity of, of the characterization of these believers is really quite encouraging. But I also find it com- uh, especially compelling when you, and I'm going to read this letter and I'm going to read the Emperor Trajan's response. It's not, it's not too long. But I want you to think about what is being described by Pliny and then the counsel that he's given by Trajan. And then think about our modern context. Remember we talked about last time how um, persecution, oftentimes we think of persecution, particularly from our vantage point in this country and our experience, uh, we think about it as oftentimes as something that's remote. Um, We tend to think about it in extreme ways. So and it's, 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 I think it's understandable. It's kind of easier to think about it in those terms for us and from our vantage point because you think about those believers who are seeking to be faithful, but they're seeking to be faithful to the gospel in an environment in which there is open antipathy and, and, and animosity toward the Christian faith. For example, in a, in a, for example, in a Muslim nation, uh, if you will. We, we, can, we can envision that and, and we can understand that and we read uh, stories of that and, 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 and understand it clearly and we tend to think of persecution in that way. But, but what I talked about last time and what I think this particular letter and this particular period of time illustrates perfectly is how Christians, just for being Christians, not, not creating an uproar, not seeking to be revolutionary and usurp the governing authorities, none of that, just for being faithful Christians can suffer persecution and can be victimized by persecution if their basic functioning is viewed as, or slanted as, in its view as a threat to the, to the powers that be in any form or fashion. And that's what you see happening here. So listen to this letter. Again, Pliny, or Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, writing to the emperor Trajan um, in the early 2nd century. He said, It is my practice, my lord, to refer to you uh, all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never before participated in trials of Christians, so I do not know what offenses are to be punished or investigated, or to what extent. All I have been, not, and, and I have been, excuse me, and I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference recognized between the very young and the more mature. Is pardon to be granted for repentance? Or if a man has once been a Christian, is it irrelevant whether he has ceased to be one? Is the name itself to be punished, even without offenses, or only the offenses perpetuated in connection with the name? 
So you see the questions he's asking. If you just bear the name Christian, are you to suffer some type of legal remedy, legal persecution, legal uh, punishment? Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have followed the following procedure. I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. So just for naming the name of Christ, execution, right? For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. So just they wouldn't recant, they wouldn't repent. So just on the basis, on the sort of the legal basis of stubbornness and obstinacy, they were executed. Um, There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. Soon accusations spread because of these proceedings, as usually happens, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for uh, for this purpose together with the statues of the gods and also cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians can, it is said, be forced to do so. These, I thought, should be discharged. So, so th- there were those who claimed to be Christians who recanted, who took the, the orders of worshiping the gods and making sacrifices and cursing Christ. And so this is an, a bit of a sad note here about, um, about really the, the exposure of, of false faith. He said, um, They all worshiped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. And this is the description of the Christians by those who had cursed Christ, who had recanted the Christian faith. This is how they describe the practice of the Christians in that time. This is going to be really staggering. Brace yourselves for how disruptive and revolutionary this is. Okay? This is how the Christians are described. These, these, these false Christians who recanted the faith. It says, They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When it was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake food, but ordinary and innocent food. That's what they were doing. Crazy, right? Even this, they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden political associations. So they submitted to the authorities, once an edict went out, that you shouldn't assemble in these kinds of ways, especially if if they've been labeled as a political association. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. So there now he's characterizing, you know, probably confessions of the faith in some way. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. Now listen to this. 
For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, that the established religious rites long neglected are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now very few purchasers could be found. So he's basically articulating a scene in which concern, very much like what, the, what happened in Ephesus with the Apostle Paul and his ministry there, that the temples of worship were being deserted because people coming to faith in Christ. So again, the threat is against the state, not so much as an open revolutionary kind of threat, but as an abandonment of the civil dictates. Remember we talked about last time that much of the the religious practice of this particular period of time in the Roman Empire was not out of some uh, understanding of spiritual devotion. It was much more of a civil kind of practice. It was much more of a civil and social kind of practice. Um, it was a, a lot of times it was sort of a, a superstitious, superstitious appeasement of the gods. Um, you know, and the, and the Christians were oftentimes uh, um, accused of inciting the wrath of the gods. For example, if if a drought would come or some sort of natural disaster would befall a community and there was a large presence of Christians, well, it was because they were no longer offering sacrifices to the gods and appeasing them, so let's blame them. So that, that was all part of it. But the people were not devoted, per se, to some religious fervor of, of, of the worship of the pantheon of gods. It was very much a cultural, civil, social kind of religion, if you will. Now think about that in light of what we're living in now. So, he finally concludes, Hence it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. So here's Trajan's response. You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out if they are denounced and proved guilty. They are to be punished with this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. So basically, Trajan is trying to maintain peace and not saying you need to seek out those who are Christians, but if they come to mind and they don't recant and they don't denounce the faith, they are to be punished. It's interesting that during this time, or, or, or prior to this time, you have Paul, primarily um, in Acts, as we saw in the second half of our study of Acts, primarily focusing much of his attention, in addition to his spread of the gospel, on the establishment of churches, and in particular on the, on the establishment of leaders and the development of future leaders for the church. And this was really about the fortification of God's people and the protection of God's people against things like this, against things like what we'll talk about in a future study of the emergence, the rapid emergence of false teaching as well. But you have this environment 
particularly at the conclusion of the apostolic period, where at the execution of the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, by Nero in in AD 67-ish, and same with with Peter, the apostle to the, the circumcision, you have these great leaders, these apostles called directly by Christ, Peter himself, a disciple of Christ, and now they're gone. And so, so there's concern on the part of the Apostle Paul prior to this that, that is sort of expressed in a couple of different places. For example, in Acts chapter 20, you see this expressed to his address to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then, just prior to His, his execution, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-2, to 2, He gives this injunction to Timothy. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is the environment. You have this this persecution that now is becoming more state-based in its orientation, that these these new leaders are going to emerge and have to minister in, and they're going to be charged with the responsibility of continuing on this faithful ministry of building up the church, of strengthening the body of Christ, so that it is not tossed to and, thro- to and fro by every wind of doctrine, so that it doesn't fall and crater under the pressure and heat of persecution. That's the task that, that is before these new leaders in the church during this patristic period, the, this time of, of transition from the time of the apostles to the next generation of leaders in the church. Now, to this period of time, this patristic period, this branch of historical and theological study. It's a time that focuses primarily on the prominent writings of the pastors and the leaders that followed the apostles, that were essentially the disciples of the apostles. Um, The apostolic fathers is a bit of a misnomer um, because really it's the disciples of the apostles that are in, in view here. Um, if you, if you, and that's the term patristic. It has to do with patriarch or, or father. It's a reference to this period. But, but you, you have these men who were, especially the, the initial um, generation of them, who were, who were disciples of the apostles. You have this period that goes from about A.D. 100, after the death of the apostle John, to about A.D. 600, 604, 
when Gregory the Great died after serving uh, in the bishopric of Rome. Um, this is this is when the church begins to transition into what is known as the medieval church, and you have really the the emergence of the more Catholic um, ideas of of liturgical hierarchy and 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 rulership, if you will, uh, of the church. But you have this period, this period of time where you have the 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 next generation of leaders who followed the apostles. You have people, for example, like Clement of Rome. You have Ignatius of Antioch. You have Barnabas of Alexandria. You have Papias of Hierapolis. You have Polycarp of Smyrna. You have a document called the Didache. The authors of that are unknown, but it's a, it's a document instructing the church. You have a document called the Shepherd of Hermas. And then you have the letter to Diognetus are some, some documents and some, some references to these early church fathers. Now, in thinking about this, you have the first, the first most sort of near uh, letter to the point of time of the death of the apostles written by Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome uh, is viewed as or is understood to be the fourth pastor of the church in Rome, uh, around 80, 90 to 100. Um, he is known in Catholic circles as the fourth uh, pope of Rome. As you know, the Catholic Church traces its uh, papal lineage all the way back to Peter, Peter the prince of the popes. He's the, he's the first pope, and, and, um, and this is, uh, Clement is viewed by the Catholics as the fourth pope, but he's essentially the fourth pastor of Rome. He followed Peter... Uh, Linus and Cletus, according to church tradition. Uh, he was probably born around AD 30 and died around the same time as the Apostle John, around AD 100. Uh, he's uh, quite likely mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, uh, where Paul notes, having shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's a, a reference to him by Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 4. Um, he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Uh, he quite likely had associations with and relationship with the Corinthian people as in his relationships with the Apostle Paul and ministry among them. And he writes this letter um, to the to Corinthians um, in the mid-90s. It's the oldest letter outside the New Testament scriptures that we have. So it, it represents something that is uh, near the time of the Apostles, um, it's been authenticated by uh, people like Eusebius and Origen um, as being a, a legitimate um, letter written by Clement. Um, it's interesting to note a couple of things about this letter. One is that there's, there is a tremendous amount of reference to the Old Testament in this letter. There's a tremendous dependence upon Old Testament doctrine and understanding of redemptive history particularly as it relates to justification by faith. Lots of reference to the Old Testament. This is interesting because Clement was not a Jew. He was not a Jew. He was, he was a, a Roman. He was, he was a Greek. And yet his, this, this gives indication of his learning the Old Testament as a part of his understanding of the New Covenant. In other words, there wasn't a detachment of old and new. There was a fulfillment uh, understanding of in the new covenant, uh, fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose in Christ. So there's a tremendous 
reference point in the Old Testament to Clement's letter to the Corinthians, which is not uncharacteristic of the other early church fathers. The other thing that's uh, significant, again, especially in light of how um, history is often interpreted and misinterpreted, is his emphasis on justification by faith. So when you think about him being viewed as the fourth pope of the Catholic Church, his, his doctrinal uh, statements about justification by faith would be in conflict with traditional Roman Catholic theology. And this is not uncommon in these early church fathers' writings, um, and it's often misunderstood uh, in terms of their, their viewpoint and how they understood um, the gospel. Um, he reflects basically in his teaching and in this letter, you see this, this balance between the writings of James and the writings of Paul. This balance between the works that are a fruit of righteousness and faith, which is at the root of righteousness. Um, the root of the gospel is grace by faith, and the fruit is good works. So you see this balance and him holding him in balance simultaneously. Um, I'm going to read some excerpts. And by the way, um, Nathan Busnes, Dr. Nathan Busnes, does a, a good analysis of this and pulling out some excerpts from Clement's letter. Um, and I've kind of pulled some of this information from, from his notes on the subject. Um, but just to highlight the fact that, that when you look at church history from the standpoint of Roman Catholicism, this is often not the, the, the place where they're going to land in their understanding of, of history. They're going to land in a place that's going to support the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. But Clement was clearly one who understood basically the doctrine that is laid out in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's a a testament to his uh, tutelage under Paul and his understanding of these letters. Another thing that's interesting to note is that there's clear indication that these letters that were being written, these New Testament letters, this is before the New Testament canon was recognized by the church. Okay? This is before the, the 27 letters of the New Testament were fully recognized as, as scripture, New Testament scripture from the church in, in its complete form. But, but understanding of and dependence upon and uh, an adherence to the authority of the apostolic teaching found in these letters is clear in the writings of these early church fathers, in particular Clement's letter. So there's really a, 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 the, the, there's sort of two ways to, to identify the, the, the formation, if you will, of the canon of Scripture, the 27 books of the New Testament in particular, where you could say, well, the, 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 the New Testament was acknowledged or formalized, but really what took place was it was, it was recognized as authoritative. It was understood as authoritative by the church. It had, in other words, it carries its own authority. It's inspired by the Spirit of God, and the church merely recognized these letters as such, as opposed to this, this ruling religious authority saying, we're going to pick these books and say, this is authoritative for the church. And so you see this evidence of, of this, this growing understanding of the divine inspiration and authority of even New Testament epistles. But this, this reference to or this emphasis on justification by faith is found in several uh, places, particularly starting in chapter 30 of Clement's letter. Let me just read some of the excerpts so you can get, get a sense of, 
of how he communicates this. He says, Let us therefore cling unto those to whom grace is given from God. Let us clothe ourselves in concord, being lowly-minded and temperate, holding ourselves aloof from all backbiting and evil speaking, being justified by works and not by words. There you have sort of the, the hearkening to how James would articulate this. Let us not um, prove our faith by works alone, by, by, by words, but also by works. Let us be doers of the word. He goes on to say that much shall, um, he, he, he that says much shall hear much in answer doth read, ready. For he says, excuse me, he that says much shall hear much in answer doth ready taker, ready talker think to be righteous. I'm not sure I understand that sentence. Blessed is the offspring of a woman that lives but a short time. Do not be abundant in words. Let our praise be with God and not, for, not of ourselves, for God hates those who commend themselves. Let the testimony to our good deeds be given by others as it was the case of our righteous forefathers. So this is a reference to conduct that validates genuineness of faith. He's emphasizing the fruit of justification. Let us therefore cling to his blessing and let us see what are the ways of blessing. Let us study the records of the things that have happened from the beginning. Why was our father Abraham blessed? Was it not because he wrought righteousness and truth through faith? So now he's coming back to the doctrine of justification by faith in reference to Abraham, much the same way that both uh, Paul did as well as James. Then he refers to Isaac, Isaac with confidence as knowing the future was led as a willing sacrifice. Jacob, with humility, departed from his land because of his brother and went to Laban and served, and the twelve tribes of Israel were given to him. So this, these references to their faith and their humility of faith. He goes on to say, If any man will consider them one by one in sincerity, he shall understand the magnificence of the gifts that are given by him. Faith is a gift given by God. It is, it is something that is not earned through works. So this reference to works at the beginning is a reference to what is the fruit of this faith that he's now articulating. It is not something that is a both-and a both situation where you must be justified by faith and works. It is There is a root of justification, which is grace through faith, and there is the fruit of justification, which is good deeds, good works, commendable works that he articulates in various ways in his instructions to the Corinthians. He goes on to say, For of Jacob are all the priests and Levites who minister unto the altar of God. Of him is the Lord Jesus, as concerning the flesh of him who are kings and rulers and governors in the line of Judah. Yea, and the rest of the tribes are held in no small honor, seeing that God promised, saying, Thy seed shall be as the stars of heaven. They all, therefore, were glorified and magnified, not through themselves or their own works or the righteous doing which they wrought, but through His will. And then here's a capstone statement. And so we, having been called through His will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith, whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have been from the beginning to whom the glory forever and ever, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, when you start thinking about the development of the church, the protection of the church, the building up of the church, one of the ways that this had to be done was in the 
the fortifying of an understanding of the gospel. And Clement of Rome, in this letter to the, to the Corinthians, does just that as, with his emphasis on justification by faith that leads to good works. He even, he even uh, echoes what the Apostle Paul talks about when he says, Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? So if, if salvation is through grace alone, not by works, shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Here's what Clement says. What then must we do, brethren? Must we idly abstain from doing good and forsake love? May the Master never allow this to befall us at least, but let us hasten with urgency and zeal to accomplish every good work. So isn't it just encouraging to see this direct link to the instruction of the Apostle Paul, the the authority of Scripture being carried on, being passed on, just like the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy. Teach men so that they may train up the the body of Christ and pass these things on uh, to the next generation. You see this happening in this fundamental doctrine of justification by faith and the fruit of repentance that comes as a result of genuine transformation. Contrast that with what we read from these believers or these so-called believers, who some who came under persecution and through expediency and self-preservation recanted their faith, quickly resumed the worship of gods and and did all the rituals that they were called upon to do and cursed Christ. What what Clement is instructing the believers in is that there is a root of salvation that is genuine that results in fruit of good works that substantiate and validate and affirm, not to mention give testimony of that work of grace to the watching world. This, of course, is Reformation theology before the Reformation. That's what you have going on here. This is pre-Reformation Reformation theology in the early 2nd century, being written by uh, a disciple and and companion of the Apostle Paul himself to the church at Corinth. Listen to what Martin Luther says and see how it correlates with what we've just read from Clement. When we have thus taught faith in Christ, then do we teach also good works, because thou hast laid hold upon Christ by faith, through whom... Thou art made righteous, begin now to work well. Love God and thy neighbor, call upon God, give thanks unto him, praise him, confess him. Do good to thy neighbor and serve him. Fulfill thine office. These are good works indeed which flow out of this faith. And Calvin says it this way, We dream not of a faith which is devoid of good works. Would ye then obtain justification in Christ? You must previously possess Christ, but you cannot possess Him without being made a partaker of His sanctification, for Christ cannot be divided. He goes on to say, We deny that good works have any share in justification, but we claim full authority for them in the lives of the righteous. It is obvious that gratuitous righteousness is necessarily connected with regeneration. And then to hear MacArthur speak of this in his commentary on James. He says, The genuineness of a profession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is evidenced more by what a person does 
than by what he claims. It cannot be stressed too often that no one can be saved by works, but neither can it be stressed too often that as James declares in the present passage, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Genuine, transforming faith not only should, but will produce genuine works, notably repentance and obedient submission to Christ's Lordship. So I find this this little study, this little survey of Clement's writings very, very encouraging from the standpoint of the, the foundations of the gospel and our understanding of it. And if you think about what often is assaulted uh, in terms of Christian faith, it's, it's the, the discontinuity and the unreliability of sources, the unreliability of the historicity of the New Testament or the New Testament writers or them writing of their own accord and, and for their own selfish purposes or whatever it might be. But what you see in just this one little glimpse, and we'll see it over and over and over again as we continue to move through history, is the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of his spirit and the faithfulness of his people, sustains the preeminency and authority and power of his word and his gospel and uses that to effectively draw men to himself in saving faith. And that, that record of redemptive, the redemptive work of Christ throughout history is on display over and over and over and over again as far back as right after the, uh, the, the apostolic period, all the way up to the present. Now, what we also see, and we'll talk about this more as we continue going forward, what oftentimes comes into play, in addition to the introduction of various heresies, taking the truth of Scripture and tweaking it, adjusting it, taking out parts that we don't like, adding parts that we think would make it better, all that kind of thing is happens very early on, and we're going to see that. The, the, the concerns that the Apostle Paul expressed were realized very early on in the history of the church. So there's always this threat of taking the clear teaching of Scripture and doing something with it to make it more appealing, to make it fit a certain worldview, to make it fit a certain uh, you know, fleshly interest or desire, whatever it might be. The other thing that comes into play very early on and is not new, none of this is new, is this this desire for men to identify themselves with other men of authority. So just like the Apostle Paul wrote to, to the Corinthians, some are saying, I am of Peter, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Christ. That tendency in the heart of men, just like in the Old Testament, clamoring for a king, that tendency plays itself out throughout the, throughout the periods of church history, often to calamitous effect. When Christ ceases to be the head of the church, and when his established patterns of church governance are violated or thwarted in some way, you have the introduction of false teaching, or, and or you have the abuse of power and authority over God's people. And that plays out throughout church history as well. And we're going to see that uh, take, root, take root very very early on. Any closing thoughts or comments before we pray and are dismissed? Kind of a 
technical time, but hopefully encouraging. All right, let's pray.